Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 86, which begins with Thor walking out to face the Destroyer and ends with the Destroyer getting ready to cook up a good plate of Thor a la flambe. Joining us on the show today, we have Movies by Minute favorite, Father David Mowry, chaplain of the Movies by Minute community. Uh, Father David, so good to have you with us. Matt, Andy, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to be here in Puente Antiguo, New Mexico. I, I heard lots of really <laughs> nice things about the antiquing and furniture stores here and you know, the, the very quiet, tranquil atmosphere of the town. That was really the main selling point from all the brochures. That's right. Plus the Christmas everyday store. Well, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it because as I look out my window of Minnesota where we are getting, uh, I think the fifth inch of snow is coming down at the moment. Uh, New Mexico is a much better place to think about being. Uh, Father David, uh, uh, we're so excited to have you on here. And I want to just start by asking, like, uh, as introducing you to our fans, uh, Catholic priest and who loves talking about uh, fandom. I'm sure you get this question a million times, but give us the elevator pitch. How, how did this come about for you? Uh, well, first, I'm a nerd. I always have been. I've always been interested in storytelling, interested in fantasy, in the possibilities that are presented by setting stories in fantastic realms where you're able to create scenarios and create situations that explore important human questions. Now, that's the adult answer. When I was a kid, I just liked the dragons and the swords. That was the fun part. But as, <laughs> as time has gone on, I've seen the narrative potential of those various formats. And when it came to this particular format of movies by minutes, it, it all happened because of my nerdery. I was listening to Star Wars Minute as it was coming out. And as the whole movies by minutes community was gaining steam, there was a decision made to have a, a get together in person. And geographically, it worked out that Chicago was the place to have that. That worked out best for everyone. And I live in the Chicagoland area. So it was really easy for me just to pop downtown to uh, the theater where everyone was hanging out. And that's where I got to meet face to face these voices that I'd heard <laughs> through my headphones. And, oh, that's what Pete the Retailer looks like. Oh, OK. <laughs> and get to meet the well. And the, the big connection I made there was with the Indiana Jones Minute fellows because they were getting ready for their last crusade season, I said, hey, you know, if you want to have a Catholic priest <laughs> come on and talk about the Holy Grail, I, I think I might be able to say one or two things about the movie. <laughs> and from there, as people heard me on shows, I said, oh, hey, this guy can string a sentence together. OK, well, let, let's get him on our show because you know how it is running a daily podcast, a little bit of variety, always looking for that different perspective, different take. Please just give me the content uh, and I'm happy to <laughs> oblige. Well, it's wonderful. We're so good to have on here. And, and one other question I want to ask before we kind of dive into things in general, you know, when when Andy told me that we're going to have a, a Catholic priest on as a guest, I, I'm a former pastor myself, and I warned him, listen, like, mm -hmm. I have to say, I'll be careful that we don't just have like 30 minutes every day of discussing the theology of things. But then I looked at the minutes you picked, and I have to ask, is this intentional? Because as I understand it, you picked minutes that are about the sacrifice, death, and literal resurrection of a god figure. This is not coincidental, I'm guessing, Karen. Am I right? <laughs> oh, oh gosh, is, is that what goes on in these five minutes? You know, I'm, I'm just I'm just looking at this movie one minute at a time. No, no, no. That is, yeah, there is. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll get into this in, in the course of the show, but uh, I think the uh, Nordic monks who 
transliterated the old Norse myths would be very happy with the rich Christian themes that are present in this story about Thor. <laughs> definitely, devil. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about, but no worries, fans. Andy will pull us back to discuss the camera angles and the, the things we're seeing. We won't just do Theology Minute for the next, next week. That's right. So we start out with Thor kind of walk, you know, he's just, it's him himself walking out into this street, you know, where he's facing the destroyer. And, and like I said, we're not going to go all theology, but I got to just start here. Is this basically a Gethsemane moment? Is this, and not that Christianity is the only one that has a story like this, but this theme of the lone person walking out to face danger, sacrificing themselves for others. Like this seems like a very rich theme that, that Brown is getting us in this one moment. The symbolism here is very Christian, and it's significant in this particular moment in the story of Thor, because here is an Asgardian who has been trained from birth to be a warrior, to be a defender of the realm, to rely on his strength, to see him through any challenge, who revels in the chance for battle in order to test that strength. And here he has thrown away Sif's shield. He has just this plaid shirt and not the rich red cape to protect him. And he, he speaks of himself earlier just as I'm just a man now. Uh, I, I can help get people to safety, but you all need to fight the destroyer. And so there's this is a coming to terms for Thor with his own weakness, his own loneliness. And he still can serve in that moment of weakness as a protector, as one who goes now out in front of his friends. I was thinking about how much a, a reverse this is of the battle on Jotunheim, where mm. with all the camera angles, it's the way the camera is shot. Thor is behind his friends as they're running away from the Jotun beast. But now the camera angles are reversed. Thor is in front of his friends where he was supposed to be the entire time. And he is more fitted for this moment now without the hammer, without his strength than he was on Jotunheim for all the, the warrior glory that he was reveling in. The reference to the battle on Jotunheim is a, is a fantastic one because it really does, as you were saying, reflect that kind of the internal shift that we've had with Thor that we've kind of been watching over the last uh, 10, 20 minutes or so when he was so headstrong and he wasn't even paying attention in on Jotunheim when his friends were saying, come on, we got to go. And they were all fleeing. And he's just, you know, having a jolly old time knocking Jotun beats or knocking, knocking, sorry, the, the Jotuns down left and right. Meanwhile, his friends are being chased by this monstrous Jotun beast uh, across the landscape. I mean, he does save them, but it's, it's like, you know, he wasn't paying attention well enough to do it, you know, until the very last minute. And here, this is this moment where he has made that shift. We have seen him grapple with the challenges of realizing, I have been banished. I'm just a man. I have no uh, none of my former strength or glory. Uh, but here I am. I am now going to uh, protect all of you uh, from this thing that is coming. I mean, it's it's a beautiful change that we've seen here. And with the slow motion emphasis, I mean, I think that really helps uh, kind of push that. The music swells here as well. Uh, now, one of mm -hmm. my knocks against the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole is the very thin soundtracks that they provide. Really, oh, yeah. we have the Avengers theme 
and that's about it when it comes to the music. So I was, I, I was. I think the the Marvel logo itself might have a better score than most of the movies. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Yeah, that's dry. I can I can pick pick that out of my brain immediately. Yep, right. So here I was trying to listen to the musical themes, and we have the main leitmotif of the movie here. This da da da. It's they're very sweeping, meditative, kind of otherworldly, sustained string theme, which. I find fascinating for a movie about the God of Thunder, but but there it is. Well, that'll change somewhat when we get to Ragnarok. But for now, there's this uh, very peaceful, contemplative, otherworldly theme that has come into this as Thor is stepping into himself. He's stepping into this heroic moment where now he is fulfilling the desire of Odin, that he be kingly, that he be a true Asgardian, as one who is not seeking war, but is ready for it when it comes and he's going to fight this war against the destroyer not with Mjolnir not with any Asgardian strength but with this humility and, and with an honesty that we haven't seen from Thor before yeah but one thing I thought was very striking just in terms of the movie making thing and Andy this is your influence on me that I'm seeing these things now is that it keeps cutting back and forth between Thor and his friends you know and Jane cries out wait and like everyone is clearly concerned all of them are shot in Dutch angles. He shot straight ahead. And to me, it was such a great way of showing, like, in this moment where everyone is concerned, everyone else is off balance, he's 100% at peace. It feels like this is the first time where he really knows who he is and what he is supposed to be. That's a great point. And it's... it's <laughs> There's a danger that Brana is dancing on with using Dutch angles as much as he is throughout this <laughs> film, because it gets to a point where the Dutch angle just doesn't mean as much. It doesn't carry the same weight. Mm -hmm. But you're right. In a moment like this, where he is very deliberately saying, OK, I'm going to put them on unstable ground, essentially. But Thor is on solid ground uh, with those uh, the the positioning of the the camera. I think uh, it it is a moment where it does give us. Uh, at least in this scene, it gives us that sense. And and then that's that's mirrored in then the, the Dutch angle we have on the close-ups on Thor as he's walking up to the Destroyer because Thor is taking a big risk. Mm -hmm. He is walking out into uncertain territory. He, he does not have the confidence of a warrior here. He has been disarmed. He has been made vulnerable. He's had to come to terms with his own unworthiness in that uh, moment where he fails to pick up Mjolnir and he buys Loki's lies, hook, line, and sinker. Um, Thor is a very nice guy, but he's a bit of a dunce. Uh, and <laughs> he now steps into this, this slightly unstable place, but his composure, his confidence carries him through all the way up. So he's standing, well, not face to face, like face to navel with the destroyer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that one of the things I also thought was so interesting is we get one, sh we get a couple of shots of different people reacting, but we got one shot of like all the friends kind of lined up. And as you said, it's him walking out in front of them. It's very much an old West showdown on, on the OK Corral kind of thing, which we'll get to. Mm. But one thing I really noticed also is that the Asgardian friends and the Earth friends all have the same kind of expression. You know, and, and to me, there's something really powerful there of these two people know him in fundamentally different ways. They're what they are surprised by him about is normally going to be totally different. But in this moment, he's doing something so outside both of them. You know, it really to me emphasized this is a Thor that the Asgardians haven't seen and the Earth people haven't seen. 
Yeah, it's it. You can see that in when the Asgard, <laughs> the Asgardians show up at the um, uh, at the clubhouse or whatever that building is. What is what is that building? Yeah, Smith Motors. Smith Motors. Thank you. When they show yeah. up at the old yeah, auto dealer, <laughs> it, it's it's a clubhouse. Uh, and looks like right. <laughs> they're they're expecting Jotunheim Thor. They're expecting the loud, brash, go get them. Oh, finally, you guys are here. I've been languishing here on Midgard. Thank goodness, time for some fun. And they're they're already aware of the fact that Thor is different. Thor is changed. And they they accept that pretty quickly, I think, because of their trust for Thor and their bond with him, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about later. And for Jane and Darcy and Eric, they've also formed a bond with Thor, but they've not seen his nobility. They have seen, you know, foolishness, getting hit by a car twice, uh, <laughs> being an absolutely insane person and marching right into a government facility. Uh, and over time, they start to see him more as grounded in this world, as, as someone who has a, a less than um, less than outsized idea of his own importance. And he, he gets <laughs> he gets integrated into normal life. He makes breakfast for crying out loud. When was the last time that Thor ever made his own food? I, I don't know if that's ever happened in Thor's life. <laughs> right. uh, he was throwing those pumpkins around earlier in the movie it's clearly he doesn't have a the finest regard for culinary arts and presentation uh so now yeah exactly there's this uh unique situation where those who knew him as god and those who knew him as fool now get to see him as king yeah it's a very powerful and important moment and one of the just another going back to the tech nerd side of things one of the things that i love that uh that brana and uh, his dp did is that they shot that shot of Thor walking toward the destroyer, the head-on shot with his friends in the background on a very long lens, mm -hmm. and it really compresses everything. So it really it it kind of puts them all together as a group. It mm -hmm. doesn't separate them. It just makes them feel like he is really like the lone figure in front of this group, but they are like literally like all right behind him now. It's it's a beautifully uh, put together shot. And I also want to say I love particularly what you're saying about like the, the the nobility and the kingness, and it goes back to what we we're saying before because I think Branagh I think is is trading on the sort of cultural understandings that we have. You know, a lot of this is Shakespearean, but also like when, in in the cultures in which we're watching this movie, like we think of a, a, a noble sacrifice, the Christ-like story is what often comes to mind. But but I think one thing that's also important though is like that is a story that's repeated in a lot of mythologies, including in Norse mythology, and then there's a lot of ways in which him taking on this role, you know. Odin sacrificing his eye for wisdom, Tyr sacrificing his hand to protect the people from Fenris. Um, I, I know I think there's at least one uh, Norse god who actually dies as part of a sacrifice. Like there's a, it, it, I, I love that it's kind of playing on those those themes as well that are so significant for Thor himself. Of like, if you are to be the king, if you are to be what Odin wants you to be, not only does it mean you have all the glory, but it means that when there's real danger, you have to be the one to face it and and possibly sacrifice. And, and, and so leading to that, I'm kind of, I would want to throw out and ask, do you think in Thor's mind, is there any question about what's going to happen now? Does he think there's any possibility he lives through this or is he going, or is he thinking to himself, I'm going to die, but that way everybody else will live? Now, he, he's a man resolved at this point. <clears throat> the fact that he throws away the shield communicates that narratively. He, he goes in with nothing and in the lines that are here, he is not only willing to uh, accept responsibility, he's willing to take whatever Loki wants to dish out. Whatever I've done, I'm sorry, 
spare them. And that's as much as we get in this particular minute. But there is no shadow of uh, any kind of hope for escape, I think, in in Thor. He knows what's coming. You mentioned, uh, Matthew, you mentioned Gethsemane early in, in the minute. And that's a, an equivalent moment. The The agony in the garden for Jesus is not the racked brain of how do I get out of this thing that I know is coming? It's rather, I know what's coming. How do I accept what human nature revolts against? Because human nature revolts against death. We don't want to die. We're, we're made with a very strong self-preservation <laughs> instinct for a reason, because life is good. And it takes an incredible resolve to be able to lay down one's life. You know, we consume so many stories of noble sacrifice and laying one's life down for others that it's easy for us to think that, oh, well, <laughs> it's easy to do. You know, we see Thor doing it. We see Captain America doing it. We see Iron Man doing it. Well, sure, this would be the easiest thing to do. But we have all those stories in our culture precisely because it is such a hard thing to do. And we need that constant reminder in the stories we tell ourselves of the great good that is present here that overcomes something natural in us, that self-preservation, for something I would say that's supernatural, that exercise of true love, of a selfless giving for the sake of others. And one thing I think that is so important to it, uh, and again, kind of it shows one more part of Thor's evolution here, is that he's willing to make the sacrifice where there's almost no Asgardians around. No one's probably ever going to know this, you know. Uh, just not long ago, when when he was trying to talk Sif out of fighting, Sif was saying, like, I want to die in a death worthy of the stories. And, you know, Thor obviously wanted the same thing. This is the kind of thing where, like, the Warriors 3 are there, but they're probably going to be outcasts because of this treason they committed against Loki. Like, this story isn't going to be one that's told again and again. And I'm, uh, Babylon 5 is another, uh, show that I often reference here because it's a great favorite of mine. And in that, there's a, there's a test that the heroes have to go through where they have to show that not only are they willing to, to sacrifice for a cause, but that even that act of sacrifice isn't about ego because that they're willing to sacrifice at a time and place where no one will ever know, where it won't be turned into story. And that's, I always think about that with Thor here is that that even his desire to be remembered, that his death be memorable. Because I, I think at one point he says, you know, well, even if the Odins kill us, you know, we'll have a memorable, we'll have a, a notable death. This wouldn't be a notable death. And that to me is just one more sign of how powerful what he's doing here is. It's, it's a really interesting point about that. Uh, the fact that, yeah, I mean, he he's basically assuming here, I'm going to I'm going to get killed by the destroyer. Hopefully Loki will take that as a sign that, you know, I'm not going to ever be back and he'll stop this war on Midgard and leave them. And but yeah, the Warriors three, they would be outcasts and it would be kind of something that nobody speaks of. So it's a, it's a very interesting perspective that, I mean, he really has. I mean, that I mean, there's so many things here that really show that complete shift in Thor at this moment. The mention of the stories that we told about this day just reminds me of that moment between Thor and Sif, where Sif is saying, oh, the stories we told about this day. And I always find that moment really funny. Because, like, you know, lady, you're you're behind a car in the middle of small town in New Mexico. <laughs> no, no one, no one's going to tell any stories about this day. But that that just shows the the Asgardian mentality that Thor used to have. That doesn't work in this moment. Something else is required here in Puente Antiguo that, sure, served you fine on Jotunheim, served you very well in all the battles you've fought up to this point, but something else is necessary here because with the Destroyer, brute force just isn't going to work. 
at first. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we do break the Christ motif at some yeah, point in a well, few yeah. minutes. We'll get to that. Oh, yeah, right, right. Uh, so, and I know there's a couple things about the shots here that uh, we want to get into and include some of the great shots, the buildings and the like. But one thing I need to ask is, because again, it's one of those moments where like, I know exactly what Branagh is getting to and the story beats he's hitting are incredible. But I have one question. We need Thor to have this long, slow walk. He needs to be able to give this speech. And the only way that works is if the destroyer suddenly forgets that its weapon is capable of hitting things more than 10 feet away. Um, <laughs> is there any justification except for the fact that the story needs it that the destroyer doesn't just wipe him out as he's walked down the street? Well, that, that raises a question about the relationship between Loki and the destroyer. Yeah. Is Loki controlling the destroyer? Or is the destroyer acting on programming like a robot? Right. Because it's a little ambiguous. Like in the vault at the beginning of the movie, clearly the destroyer is acting on programming. And when Loki sends the destroyer out, make sure Thor never returns. Like, okay, what? That's a pretty clear message. But throughout this week, there are just these indications that somehow Loki has some kind of control over this. And Loki, big drama queen that he is, just wants to revel in this moment, just wants to squeeze every element of pathos out of Thor that he can before he just rubs him out. It's definitely an interesting element with the Destroyer that certainly comes from the comics, because in the comics, you know, the Destroyer is this uh, magical suit of armor that does require a a being, uh, whether it's an Asgardian, Midgardian, whoever it is, to kind of basically connect with it via their their soul or kind of their their essence or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Their body kind of lies there while their soul goes into the suit and they run around destroying things, and that's kind of yeah. what happens as long as their body is safe, etc. They really never made that connection in the film at the beginning. It really did seem like this just autonomous uh, robot that comes out when something's in the vault. I mean, that's really kind of what we've seen. And even, as you said, when Loki gives it the directions, it seems pretty specific. Do these things. And that's its programming, right? Mm -hmm. Very RoboCop sort of thing. But... This is the one scene where I feel like, okay, so they were trying to find a way to kind of keep that connection still with the comics as far as because it really does seem like there is this connection. And I think part of my read of the way the Thor approaches is that he knows it's Loki. Like, he knows Loki is controlling it. He Mm -hmm. knows Loki can hear him and Mm -hmm. he has this conversation with Loki. I mean, it's just that's kind of my assumption is that. There is that element they pulled from the comics, even if it's never made that obvious in the film. You mentioned Loki being able to hear him. When we cut to Loki in the throne room, what I imagine is that he's got his whole home theater set up where he's able to see from the Destroyer's (laughs) viewpoint because you get Thor's voice coming like from speakers from around Loki. There's a little bit of reverb. Destroyer cam is definitely a thing here. (laughs) Yeah, and and he's just off camera. You can't see it, but just off camera, Loki just has a little bucket of popcorn. And And, and I like that especially because we'll get to this more in the next minute, I think, but what I have said that sort of I've the scales have fallen from my eyes on on this uh, movie about Loki and that I I have come to see him as much more of a complicated figure than I thought I saw him as the first time I watched it. And I I love if so much what we're talking about is how different Thor is. For me, that shot of Loki where he's just like watching, like fascinated. I think you're right. He's the drama queen. He wants to draw it out. But I have to imagine that there's a, a there's a part of him that like 
he knows he needs to kill his brother. He wants to kill his brother, but there is still some part of him that that's wrestling with that. But also, this is a Thor he's never seen either, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think it's, it's, we'll get more to him, I think, in the next minute. But it, it, it to me is so, I, I have to hope that you're right. I think that there's, Destroyer, it's not just the comic timing. It's the Loki, well, all the stuff Loki's going through as they draw closer to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we see in that shot, in those couple shots? Cause I think, uh, Andy, you definitely had some notes about the, uh, old west town that we're seeing here. Well, yeah. I mean, through this whole scene, aside from some, you know, sketchy, 2011 CG, which we're definitely going to have all through the whole week. Um, we, you know, Brana cuts to a few wide shots of the town just to kind of give us a sense of everything that's going on. And I really have to say, some of these shots really don't work in context of us believing that Puente Antiguo has over 2,000 people and that it isn't just an old West town that has been dressed up to look like a, a modern town. Um, you know, when you cut to the wide shot, I mean, it's a, it's a great helicopter shot overhead where you're kind of flying, you know, kind of across. You see kind of the smoke rising from the street and from the 7-Eleven. But you can also see you know, some of the backs of the buildings that look a little unfinished. Uh, some of the buildings <laughs> look like they've been sitting there for a long time doing nothing more than you know, acting as background dressing for other Western things. Um, on the right-hand side of Main Street, it looks like there was no coding involved in how they built the buildings. Like, it's like some of these buildings, I'm like, how do people even get to that building? Like, there's no, there's no path or road or anything. Um, and then on the far right, the back right, you can actually see the big dirt road that actually leads out of this whole complex. And so, yeah, it's like there's no pavement. It's just dirt roads. If you look closely, you can actually see crew vehicles on the far uh, back right, which is kind of funny. I mean, it, it, they could just be townies, but you know that mm-hmm. it's essentially the crew parking over there. Oh, um, and then just landscaping note, if you look uh, at the very, very top of the frame, you can actually see Galisteo Creek in the very back distance, which is more just an interesting oh, point that. than anything else. But it's it's interesting to see how it looks now um, or just in the context of this. And actually, if you go look at it online, um, to on like Google Maps, they've actually reduced the number of buildings that it had. So they've actually made it even smaller wow. than it was at this particular point in time. So yeah, well, I, mean, I guess it speaks to the fact that they haven't been filming a lot out there. And you know, these things do run down out there in the middle of nowhere. Puente Tigro looks like you could take a 10 minute walk and circle the whole thing and still have two minutes left over. <laughs> and yet Thor's found a way to spend an hour walking around yeah, wondering right. how to get out of town. So, <laughs> you know, um, so let's go get to some of the things that, that Thor says as he's approaching. He starts out with an apology. And again, to me, this is very much the noble moment. This is the humility moment, particularly in the way he phrases it, because he says, brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry, but these people are innocent. To me, it's fascinating there because he's doing two different things at the same time. One is he's, he's, he's apologizing in a very genuine, open way. He's clearly saying, like, it's me you're after, not these other people. You know, take me. But he's also doing it in a way where he's saying like that he he acknowledges that he hurt Loki in ways that caused Loki to make the decisions Loki is now making, mm-hmm. but while still acknowledging Loki's agency. Like often this would be, oh, Loki, none of this is your fault. It's all mine. I'm so sorry. But the phrasing of I whatever I have done to lead you to do this, to me, it's such a brilliant way of saying it. He, he's taking all the agency, but he's also saying like, Loki, now you're the one making bad decisions. Mm-hmm. It speaks to Thor's self-possession in this moment where he is, well, it's it's also part of the mythic 
phrasing that Thor has in the comic books and running throughout that every line is very carefully thought through and 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 uh, and phrased even before it comes out of his mouth, even though he's the hot tempered God of Thunder. He's still a God. And so therefore, there is a certain gravitas and consideration given to the weight of his words. He does all this, though with that sense of humility that we've never seen from Thor in any of his interactions with Loki. I mean, the first direct interaction they have in the final cut of the movie is Thor saying, it's unwise to be in my presence right now, brother. So there's a distancing move. They're like, look, I love you enough that I want you to get away from me. And here now there is a a connective language here. Whatever I've done to lead you to do this, I recognize that my actions have an influence on you that however much I might have tried to push you away, so I've influenced you. And there, that is part of the move of redemption here. It's part of the move of reconciliation, an acknowledgement of Thor's own uh, sinfulness, his own poor choices, while recognizing that Loki is the one pulling the strings on the destroyer. He's he's the one with the giant red button that says destroy Puente Antiguo. And then Thor is just saying, look, before you push that button, let's just let's reconsider. It's a I mean, it's a really powerful speech the way that that he does it. And it's simple and it's quiet and there's peace to it. And I, I think that's what uh, that's what I really appreciate about it. And, I, you know, I've I've said this, you know, so many times I feel like on the show is like the way that Thor speaks in this film, like when he is having a conversation with someone and they talk to him about something or, or bring up a point like he is present. He is there. Mm-hmm. He he truly like looks into their face and delivers his lines in ways that make you feel like this is a person who really connects. And I, I feel like that same thing here, like he is having this moment where he is wholly invested in this moment and just focused. And I mean, he's at peace with it. And it's I mean, it really brings a lot of power to the moment. Mm hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, just because it's a fun little moment, we're going back a little bit in a minute. I want us to wrap up soon, but we get a moment where Thor is like, you know, nobly walking forward. The music is swelling, and the destroyer is coming forth to meet him, and then just kicks this truck out of the way. What's <laughs> happening there? Is that just kind of like adding a little bit of levity? Is it kind of showing like that how little the destroyer cares about the nobility of what's happening? What what what's Brenna doing in that one moment? Just in case you forgot, the destroyer was an unstoppable killing machine. We're just going to have it casually kick a pickup truck because there hasn't been enough yeah. evidence of that <laughs> yet. Like so. Even in this quiet moment, I think Brenna's just trying to remind us, yeah, the Destroyer, it, it can turn Thor into tomato paste if it wants to. <laughs> right on the label. It destroys things, right, yeah. yeah. It's it's also really funny and unintentional that they uh, meant to do this, but they have, you know, I mean, Thor talks to the Destroyer for like half of this minute, but when we see that shot of them, uh, of the Destroyer kicking the truck, like they are, you know, maybe 20 feet apart and they keep walking toward each other through that whole 30 seconds. And it's not till the end that suddenly they're like right next to each other. I'm like, uh, they maybe should have had the Destroyer a little farther back. But, you know, it's one of those. It's one of those. Things. Like I said, Loki forgot it's a long range weapon. He seemed right. to think it's just, you know, a short range thing. It kept missing. You know, what? It's, so no, he's just like, he doesn't want to miss. There we go. Exactly. So, uh, any of the last things either one you want to bring up about this minute? I just I have one one quick thought before uh, before uh, Father David has his his little uh, 
uh, section that we have here. But I, I don't know if this also is intentional, but just, you know, speaking of other biblical references, I can't help but feel there's a little bit of a David and Goliath moment, too, just with at least just with the size. Obviously, it doesn't play the same. But I, I, I really like that, that like the end of this minute, we get that shot of little Thor and big destroyer. And I just think that's a, a great little uh, like a, a reference that we have at that moment. Mm hmm. Well, as as Andy mentioned, I, I do have uh, some notes of a little recurring segment I like to do on all the superhero movies by minutes shows that I like to call Christ and the Cape, talking about the Christian themes that get touched upon in these movies and these superhero stories. And, and the basic idea behind it is that every superhero story is a story about salvation, that heroes save the day. It's what they do. That's what makes them a hero. Now, how heroes save, it varies from hero to hero, but I think there is something inherently uh, Christian about the Western superheroes that we've put together, and I, I think the the themes of Christianity haunt our stories about superheroes, and you can hear and pick up the echoes of it. Um, Today, I want to start with the idea of anthropology, that not digging around for potsherds in the desert, but rather the, the idea of <clears throat> the theology of being human. So what does Thor say about being human? Oh, and what's interesting in this movie, unlike in other superhero movies, not only can the human characters do nothing to save themselves, either they are completely at the mercy of circumstance like Jane and her friends, or they're haplessly bumbling around with things they don't fully understand like S.H.I.E.L.D. Not only that... The problems aren't even their problems. A human character has not been responsible for any of the inciting action in this film. This has all come from the realm of the gods. And so in that way, it has a very strong pagan uh, mythic feel to it, where humans have to suffer the, the whims of the gods and anything that happens is because the gods set it into motion. So even with Jane running into Thor, that's because Odin cast him out. The destroyer tearing up Puente Antigua is because Thor is there. These human characters are wrapped up in the midst of this. However, what's interesting, and, and you can see Branagh in his uh, Shakespearean tradition coming through with this, what the human characters do for Thor is to humanize him, that through relationship, through interaction, they allow Thor to mature and to grow into the Asgardian he was always supposed to be. And they do so by deepening his conception of love. Um, now, if, if anyone's familiar with C.S. Lewis, he brought together the four Greek words for different kinds of love in a book called The Four Loves. And you can see each of the four operative in Thor at various points of the movie. So first is storge, which is familial love, affection, the most natural of the human loves. Well, here it is in spades with his love for his father, his love for his mother, his love for his brother. Now, as often happens in families, love can get a little twisted and it cannot come out in the right way. And only a father and the son can fight the way that Odin and Thor fight at the beginning of the movie. But <clears throat> that comes from a place of deep affectivity, of a deeply felt emotion. We also see Thor exercises philia, that friendship love. He has that strong bond with the warriors three and Lady Sif. And I, you know, people play with this idea of Thor and Sif having a romantic relationship, but in the text of the movie as it stands, I see much more of a battle-bonded friendship kind of thing. 
thing where Lady Sif is very clearly standing on her own. I proved all those people wrong. And, Thor's like, yeah, and I supported you the entire way. But And that that's the dynamic of friendship of <laughs> two people standing shoulder to shoulder looking at the same goal of establishing Sif as a warrior in her own right. Um, and that Philia also gets developed with Eric. And that is the first kind of humanizing movement for Thor is through a bonding, through drink, through fighting, through doing his ancestors proud. He becomes connected in this uh, this friendship way with Eric. And that opens him up to a proper relationship with Jane. And that moves to Eros, or romantic love. And, and not just kind of wild uh, lust, but rather a love for a particular person in a romantic way, in a way that wants to be deeply caught up with the other person. And you can see that being reciprocated on the rooftop scene, where Jane wants to hear Thor keep going about his explanation of Yggdrasil and the world tree. And there's a mutual fascination where, in Eros, the two people are turned in toward each other, and Jane and Thor want to know more about one another and want to uncover those secrets. And Thor humanizes through that desire to give of himself in this relationship with Jane. But then it all comes to a climax in this scene with the fourth love, agape, that selfless love, that unconditional love. Andy, like you said, there's no crowd here. There's no cheering throngs like at the the, the coronation scene at the beginning of the movie, uh, where clearly there was some uh, fire marshal tearing his hair out on Asgard because there were way too many people <laughs> in that space. Anyway, here there is no honor, no glory. There is just Thor and his brother and the people behind him, and he is going to give everything. He's not going to hold anything back. The shield is down. He has no weapons. He has only only his apology, only his love for Loki, which moves him to apologize, and his love for the people behind him, which moves him to lay down his life for their sake. And that's only possible because Thor's uh, relational world has been expanded through interacting with Eric and Jane and, yes, even Darcy, uh, and being able to find a way to give of himself for people that he doesn't have that same battle-bonded friendship with, but he's able to act in a truly kingly way where he is putting himself at the service of the greater good and truly loving others in that unconditional way. It's so fascinating hearing kind of like that, because, I mean, it's, it's I, I guess, when I think when, you know, before, I, I, I guess it was all there. I just didn't really pinpoint it quite so well. But like when you actually describe each of those very specific types of love, you can really see, I mean, this film really does a very good job of exploring all of them. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy about it and enjoy about Thor, especially because he is by nature such mm -hmm. a charismatic character. Yeah. Like you just want to connect with this, this person. Um, but even in connecting with somebody who is charismatic, there are challenges. There's always kind of that up and down because, you know, everyone is different. But finding ways to kind of explore each of those different types of love over the course of the film, I mean, it's it's actually really powerful that they, they managed to do all of them, I think, uh, quite successfully. So, yeah, I mean, that's really uh, insightful. You know, it's funny. You started talking about the Christian themes of, of, of all superheroes. My first thought was, okay, well, 
I've been talking a lot about the Jewish themes of some of the early superheroes, especially um, uh, Superman. Like, so I need to get you on another podcast at some point soon to get into all that. Because I, 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 for myself, I think it's always important to kind of understand. Like, I think we can see these things through that frame. I also think that a lot of these themes are ones that are present in a lot of different religious traditions, for to be sure. But, but absolutely, I love that idea of breaking it down. That th- this is him learning how to love on all of those levels mm-hmm. because, you know, he always has been that charismatic person. But especially the Thor in the first 20 minutes of the movie, he reminds, like, that that saying of, like, they're a great guy, the only problem is that they know they're a great guy, you know, and I feel like it's it's this, like, we're going to talk about kind of, like, the death, you know, he goes through a kind of a, a literal death moment in a few minutes, but to some extent, there's kind of, like, the death of the self that he's already gone through, that, like, his all of the things that he thinks he was, the noble warrior, the person who's guaranteed to be king— all of those ideas of himself have died, you know? And so it's, it's what he's finding is all this love, all the, the loves that he's encountering, these four different kinds of understandings of love is how he's rebuilding his idea of himself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and coming into a much truer. And so I love that idea, like the, the, the Christian anthropology of it mm-hmm. as kind of the basis of what he, was, was happening here. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, I think this is probably a good time to wrap up. Um, but Father David, for those who uh, didn't get to hear you before, they're hearing you first time. Like, I want to hear more of this fellow. I, I think you you did. A, uh, I know you've been on a bunch of podcasts. We'll talk about this over the week. But you actually were running your own podcast for a while, right? Oh, well, heavens. No, I was not running my own podcast. I am not as strong as <laughs> as you fellows are. No, no. I, I could only hack it for two weeks of a Movies by Minute podcast. I was part okay. of the community's group project looking at the best years of our lives, the 1946 movie about World War II veterans coming home. I did two weeks of that movie uh, looking at uh, – the various dreams and uh, domestic reintegrations of various veterans. And it, it was a lot of fun. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. It also made me appreciate all over again how much work this kind of thing is. So my hat's off to both of you, even if Andy can't take off his hat right now. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, yeah, so folks, definitely check that out. Uh, and uh What's the best place for people to find that podcast or other things of yours? Uh, to find that podcast and other things of mine, you can go to my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. Uh, ostensibly, I have a blog, but I haven't updated it in um, a while because life. Uh, <laughs> but there is a section where I have the episodes of the various podcasts that I have been a guest on, and I will have a there there'll be links there for the best years of our lives uh for the best minutes podcast that's the the title of the show that looked at that movie one minute at a time well thank you so much for being a part of this it's really great to have you on i'm looking forward to this whole week andy as always thank you for all the things you do to make this possible and to our fans you're the ones who we do this for you're the ones who make this make this such a great experience thank you so much and have a great day until next time true believers Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Music